Good morning. All right. I like that. That was good. Appreciate that energy. Um, I'm thankful to be here this morning with you guys. Uh, <clears throat> over the next two weeks, I'll be offering somewhat of a primer. You know, I'll give a, a bit of a disclaimer. I, I will talk a lot about feelings and emotions and family history. Uh, if you're into the Enneagram stuff, I'm a four, so I am, I'm a mess, is what I am, uh, but I'm God's mess. No, uh, I am God's mess, but I, I will talk quite a bit about uh, just feelings and, like I said, family history. I, I, I do think it's really important uh, for us to talk about the relationship of emotional wellness family history, uh, and how that all ties in together with our spiritual journey. Uh, but I am just but a man. I am not a therapist. I'm not a clinician. I, I'm, I'm not an expert in anything but my experience. And uh, that's the vantage point uh, from which I'll come. Uh, as you guys know, I've been here for a number of months. Uh, for Almost two decades, I served as a pastor in various different churches, but particularly over the last uh, previous uh, 13 years at a church that my wife and I started back in New York City. So that's my, that's my vantage point. That's my experience uh, and the things that I feel God has shown me and my family uh, through Scripture. Another thing I'll say is if you've been, if you've been around uh, over the last couple months when I have been here with you guys, for one, it's been a joy honestly, to be here with you guys and be able to share, uh, you know, the gifts that I think I have uh, in, in preaching and teaching. Uh, but two, <clears throat> one of my approaches is always to kind of look at a well-worn passage of Scripture or to look at the Bible from a different angle, a different perspective uh, that perhaps you might, you might not be familiar with or an angle that you may not have. Uh, and, and I've tried to uh, kind of look at passages of scriptures uh, from a new perspective uh, because I think that God's word is almost like a hill, right? Uh, I had one, one mentor describe it this way when, when it comes to reading the Bible and finding ways of hearing or discerning what God is saying. It's almost like a hill uh, where one group of people are standing on the eastern side of that hill, another group of people are standing on the western, northern, and southern side of the hill. Uh, and after observing for many hours the different details of the hill, the groups get together, and it almost feels like they're describing different hills or different mountains, uh, when in reality they were just looking at different angles, different sides of that mountain, different sides of that hill. And I feel like the scriptures are like that. Uh, that there are angles and perspectives that we often don't consider because we're just not standing in that vantage point. We're not standing from that angle uh, and being able to hear a new angle, new perspective. Anyways, you guys get the point. That's, I didn't even plan to say that, but I thought it was important to say it because we're going to look at a passage today perhaps that you guys are familiar with in Genesis chapter 50. Verses 15 through 21. I'll be reading from the CSB version, but it's a well-known story, the life of Joseph. Um, I will be talking, kind of just assuming that most of us know some things about this story. I'll do my best to give some context, but really I just want to look at this one little scene. 
towards the end of Genesis in the life of Joseph and his brothers uh, that I think tells us quite a bit about the importance of introspectively looking at our family history and how it impacts the way that we view ourselves and the way that we view the people around us and the way that we engage with the world around us. That's kind of where I want to go. It's a bit of a primer. I won't take a deep dive into it, but I think it's important to have a general understanding on how family history really impacts the way that we think about the world uh, and uh, the way that we think about God. So I'll read this passage for us. Chapter 50, verses 15 through 21. Now, this is toward uh, the end of uh, Joseph's time with his brothers just before they discover who he is, and, and he shares this moment with them. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said to one another, If Joseph is holding a grudge against us, he will certainly repay us for all the suffering we caused him. So they sent this message to Joseph. Before he died, your father gave a command. Say this to Joseph. Please forgive your brother's transgressions and their sin, the suffering they caused you. Therefore, please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when their message came to him. His brothers also came to him, bowed down before him, and said, We are your slaves. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Therefore, don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your children. And he comforted them. And spoke kindly to them. This is the word of the Lord. So I think part of what this passage is trying to offer us is kind of one main thrust, right? Jesus meets us in the darkness of our lives and empowers us to tell new stories. This is what I think the thrust of this, these few verses here want to offer us. But, but if I had to parse that a, a bit more, I just want to offer us two things. The first one is facing our family history is deeply important. We have to find ways to face our family history. When, if, if walking with Jesus and if our spiritual maturity is important to us, then we undoubtedly have to find ways to face our family history. Our verses begin with Joseph's brothers doing something that I think we often fail to do for ourselves. With a simple statement, Joseph's brothers pull the curtain, uh, curtain back on the dark and difficult family history that they lived with. Consider verse 15 for a moment. It throws us right into the history of this family. And if we listen closely and move slowly, I think we can see what it's saying here. Joseph's brothers say to each other, after Jacob, their father passes away. They say this, when, Joseph, uh, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said to one another, if Joseph is holding a grudge against us, he will certainly repay us for all the suffering 
that we cause them. Two, two phrases that kind of should pique our interest here uh, in, in regards to what we're talking about. The first one is if Joseph is holding a grudge. And the second one, of course, is the one that comes right after it. He will certainly repay us. Now, this may not mean much at first read or at first glance, but I think if we read it slowly and enter into this little family moment, this family drama that's about to unfold, it'll show us and we'll realize what the culture of Joseph's family actually is. And culture is is a really strange word because it's really hard to define, but one of my mentors defined it uh, pretty practically to me several years ago. He said, Rich, culture is just the way things are done in whatever environment you're part of. It's not a highly academic definition, but I think a really practical one. Culture is just the way things are done in any space that you occupy. In this case, culture is just the way things are done in this family. And I'm sure many of us can think of many different ways that things are done in your family. This is just the way the Perez's do things. Or this is just the way the Johnsons are. Or this is just the way the blank exists. Culture is just the way things are done. In other words, in these opening verses, what we're seeing is the way things are done in Joseph's family. You see, we fail to realize and acknowledge. What we fail to realize and acknowledge about our own families is what we're seeing today. Joseph's family is showing us. What we fail to see is that who we are today is shaped by generations and generations of different family experiences, habits, patterns, and sins. Perhaps in more ways than we would like to admit. More ways than we would advantage. <clears throat> both my families were, oh, excuse me, both my parents were passive people pleasers. Deeply. <laughs> I mean, like... I don't know if it was an immigrant thing. I'm sure some of that had a, a, a role in the matter. But both of my parents were passive people pleasers that would do anything to make sure that no one was ever disappointed in them. And I think in part because of their kind of immigrant realities here, they just didn't want to be noticed. They kind of wanted to fly under the radar because there was so much stigma around being an immigrant during the time that they came that to be noticed, to call attention to themselves, to have someone or a group of people be disappointed at them would potentially mean uh, some kind of deep stigma or trouble uh, considering their status, right? And so my, ba- my parents avoided people being disappointed with them at all costs, but I realized that that's kind of just in my family tree. Passive people-pleasing existed in many members of both sides of my family tree. And what I think it often implied was that I may wrestle with with that idea of being passive and people-pleasing more than anyone else would who didn't have that in their family, who didn't see that in their family. And so you see, what you may not know about Joseph's family as we read this is that there was a history of abandonment in his family that ran deep in his family. Joseph was left for dead by his brothers out of envy. He was forgotten by the prisoner that he helped while he was in prison for many years. And ultimately, Joseph felt forgotten by God while he was unjustly in prison. So this idea of abandonment 
existed in his family. What you may not know is that there is a history of violence and betrayal in Joseph's family. There's a history of lying and deception that ran in his family. Joseph's father's name was Jacob, which means deceiver. He lied to his wife. This was Jacob, his father. He lied to his wife's father in order to marry her. But what he didn't realize was that his father was lying to him about which daughter he was giving him. Joseph's brothers lied to their father about what happened to Joseph after they left him for dead. What you may not know is that there is a a deep, deep history of family rivalries, violent rivalries in their family. Jacob was deceived by his brother Esau and stole his blessing that his father was preparing to give to Esau. And Esau spent his entire life trying to kill uh, Joseph, or excuse me, Jacob for that deception. Jo- uh, Jacob's 11 sons spent their life trying to kill their brother Joseph because of their father's favoritism of him. And speaking about favoritism and partiality, that was another thing that ran deep in their family. And so it makes all the sense in the world that if these brothers were honest about the way things are done in their family, if these brothers were honest about their family history, that they would safely assume that if Joseph was holding a grudge, he will certainly get us back for all that we did. This This statement doesn't exist in a vacuum. There's a reason why these brothers were so afraid of of Joseph reacting to the grudge that he may hold. It's because they understood the way things are done in their family. Because for them, repaying evil for evil, because getting revenge over getting healing, because abandoning uh, one another rather than carrying one another, because harming one another rather than helping one another to flourish is just the way things are done in this family. So they were safe in assuming that if he held a grudge for all that they did and for all that he carried, that he would certainly... Y'all catch that, right? He said, certainly get us back for all that we did. Notice in verse 16 as we read it, these brothers were so certain and afraid that Joseph in his grudge would act out the family pattern. They were so certain that he would act out the family habit, the family script, the family pattern that they they couldn't even go themselves to bring the message. Y'all check that? They couldn't even go themselves to bring the message. They sent a messenger. He said, so they sent the message to Joseph. These brothers pleaded with Joseph to have mercy because they knew that it was normal in their family to repay evil for evil. They pleaded for his mercy. And church, you know, this begs the question, how were things done in your family? What are the patterns and the habits, the script, so to speak, that exist in your family? Some of us are unaware of the ways that our moms and abuelas, that's grandmothers in Spanish, and grandpas live inside of us. I think I might have mentioned this before, but one of my mentors uh, told me, he said, Rich, when you get saved, grandpa doesn't leave, right? Jesus may have saved your soul, but grandpa still lives in your bones. And that's what the journey of discipleship is. Learning how to reconcile 
Who lives in your bones? Who lives in your decision making? Who lives in, your, in, in, the, in the motivations of your behavior? Who's actually motivating your behaviors? I know that we love to think that it's Jesus <laughs> once we come to faith, but that isn't always the case. And so some of us often uh, uh, go through life and go through our journey with Jesus unaware of the ways that our grandpas and our uncles and our great-grandpas live inside of us. We often don't realize uh, uh, that, that, that what they do inside of us is what has existed for so many generations in our family. We don't realize that the way that we do conflict, money... The way we talk about sex, the way we talk about race, the way we talk about grief, the way that we handle loss, the way that we approach work, the way that we talk about emotions, all of it is shaped by generations and generations of family experience. And again, I know there's a very spiritual thing to say is that, well, Jesus changes the way that I do those things. And that is true, but practically, the work and the journey of discipleship is learning to reconcile where your family got it wrong. Where our families did it in an unhealthy way. The way that we talk about all those major life moments and all those major life components like emotions, sex, family, race is all shaped by generations of how our family talked about it. Our experience around those, uh, around those things forms scripts. Like an actor given a script, they just read what they're given, especially method actors that kind of take on and embody uh, the roles that they're given. I think we often take on the roles of our families, that our family uh, hands us. For years, our family did conflict by not doing conflict. <laughs> That's how we handled it, right? Our response to conflict was to avoid it at all costs so as to not make anyone upset at us. And that's just the way that we did it. And for years, that, years of doing that turned me into an over-functioning person. I said yes to everything when I should have been saying no to a lot of things. I compromised my sanity in many cases simply because of the things that I adopted from my family, this passive people-pleasing. I, I became this over-functioning person. I overextended myself because what I told myself is you have to just hold things together. There's no room for anything else. And, you know, we'll talk about this. Uh, Pastor Jenny mentioned this on Saturday. We'll, we'll go further into this primer of how to think about the integration between our emotional wellness and our spiritual journey and, and, and what role does that play? What value system should we give the way we talk about our feelings? <laughs> uh, what are the importance of that? But, but one of the things that we'll kind of look at, I'll bring my own uh, genogram, if you're familiar with that. And this, for any of y'all social workers, if you're familiar with it, it's this, it's this uh, family, elaborate family tree uh, that helps to understand not only who were, who were the generations that existed before you, uh, but what, what were some of the behaviors and motivations behind the behaviors of those generations that existed before you? What were some of those earthquake moments that shaped 
your great grandmother, uh, uh, you know, I often think about a big earthquake moment that exists uh, in my families when my parents immigrated to an entirely different foreign uh, country and began to shape and live their lives in this new place, having left their uh, uh, country of origin, uh, figuring out life now in this new place. I mean, that's a huge earthquake moment. I know another earthquake moment for me was when I lost my mom in 2007. I mean, that was massive. It impacted me in more ways than I imagined. It, it impacted me in ways that I'm still unpacking uh, 15 years later. But we'll talk a bit about genograms. But, but even just understanding that for Joseph, that that genogram and that the motivations of the generations before him are motivations that he now lives with in one way or another. And the question for us will be, what family scripts are you ignoring at the expense of your healing? That as we consider facing our family histories for the sake of our healing and our growth in Jesus, we have to ask the question, well, what scripts, what patterns are we ignoring that have been handed to us by family, uh, generations of family that we're ignoring at the expense of our healing and wholeness. But not only do we need to face our family histories, but we have to confront the pain of family cycles. We have to confront and break the pain of family cycles. The second half of verse 17 is a bit interesting to me, and here's why. There's no real evidence that Jacob, the father, while he was alive, actually said anything to the brothers about Joseph forgiving them. There's no real evidence. I mean, it could have happened. We can speculate. But in the passage, there's no real evidence that, 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 that Joseph actually forgave his brothers. So it seems that out of fear and almost self-protection, now the father, after the father is dead, these brothers are lying again. They're lying just to kind of keep themselves safe because they know that at any moment, Joseph could act out the family culture of repaying their evil. So they lie. Say, yo, Pop said just before he died, uh, you should go ahead and forgive us. So chill out, you know. It's like, ah, well, you know, passage doesn't say that Jacob said that. But you can understand why they might say that. But something even more powerful happens once their message finally reaches Joseph. And this is where I want to spend the rest of the next few moments together looking at. When the message came to him, Joseph, Joseph wept. Again, at first read, we may not even think much about that. But when we look closely and move slowly, it starts, to, it starts to show us some really powerful truths about what it means to confront painful family cycles. For a moment, knowing all that we know so far about this family, I want you to ask yourself, why do you think Joseph is crying here? I know Sunday church is not usually an interactive thing. But, but I want you to reflect for a moment. 
if you need to pull out your phone or somewhere where you're at, write down a few thoughts of why you think Joseph may be crying here. I want us to take a few moments to actually think about this. Now, there may be a million reasons why he cried because there's various angles on how to try to understand this. And, and I think that's okay to have a variety of reasons to why he may have cried. But one thing I think is absolutely true about this moment and about his weeping. Y'all, listen. When you take this work seriously to looking at family history and, and asking the really hard questions of how you've been shaped by generations of family, the way that family, generations of how people in your family had, have talked about money, generations of how people in your family have talked about race, generations of people in your family and how they've talked about sex and emotion and family and the various different things in our lives, when you, when you, when you take that work deeply serious, confronting dark family cycles is painful to the point of tears. That when I realized, and, and you know, I've, I've already shared this about the passivity that existed in my family, that, that when, and listen, I, having passivity run in my family and then being a pastor, I don't know how I got into this, into this industry of being a leader and being overly concerned about what people think about me. I mean, it's just a disaster, <laughs> quite literally, right? But God was kind. You know, I tease when I say it this way, but God was kind. But, but when I started to deeply look at the way that my family was living inside of me and how I needed to combat that, the confidence that I think I started to find in Jesus and the way that rubbed up against the way that my family had shaped me, it was painful, and it continues to be painful. It is a hard, it is hard work to confront dark family cycles to the point of tears. The Hebrew word here for um, uh, Joseph weeping is baka, which, which is the same word that is used in an earlier moment with Joseph and his brothers before they knew that it was Joseph that they were talking to. Joseph brought them over to the palace because they were being questioned of having committed a crime and stealing from their treasury. And Joseph asked them to bring their younger brother to him and he would acquit them. Which it was a really savvy request on Joseph's part. Why? Because he's the younger brother. They didn't know this. But also what Joseph didn't know was that their father, that after his alleged death, his father had another son. His name was Benjamin, and he was now the youngest and the favorite. And so when they come and they bring Benjamin to Joseph, this absolutely crushed his world. And here's why. I want you to enter into that moment, knowing what you know about Joseph, enter into the moment when he thinks he's got them. It's like a gotcha moment. He's like, yeah, bring me your youngest. I'll acquit you. And they're like, okay. Here's our youngest, and he's just like, wait a second. Enter into the feeling of that moment. Here is yet another moment that could have triggered Joseph's abandonment history. Once again, he's forgotten by his family. 
The pain of being forgotten, the pain of being left outside of the family, the pain of being replaced. All of this is perhaps causing in him a great desire to act out in violence toward his brothers. Why? Because this is how things are done in his family. But in chapter 43, just a few chapters before, in verse 30, after seeing Benjamin, Joseph hurried out because he was overcome. This is the passage. Uh, Chapter 43, verse 30. Make a note of it. Go back home. Read it in your own time. But he hurries out because he is overcome with emotion for his brothers and he is about to weep. He went into an inner room and wept there. Then he washed his face, came out, regaining his composure, and he he said, serve the meal. He had to cry and weep in, in private. You see, what I believe that this moment uh, is showing us, just like in uh, chapter 50, verse 17, is that it was inspired by all the moments of darkness and pain and hardship that stained his family and his life. And all the moments where God used those hardships to position him for this moment and all the ways that God transformed his darkness into light and all the moments that God used to transform what Joseph believed was already dead in him. Although Joseph was probably triggered by all of this, all he wanted to do was to repay them back with evil for the years of pain that he is still having to endure. Joseph knew that God had done something special. Despite all that, Joseph understood that God had done something special in and throughout all those years of darkness. And so the only thing that he could do with the tension of like, man, I just want to repay my brothers back for all the pain that they've caused me and all the pain that I've had to endure, even up to this moment. Like, yo, who who is this Benjamin kid? I'm the youngest. Y'all left me for dead many years ago. Here I am being forgotten again. All I want to do is repay you back for that evil. You know why? Because this is just how we do it in the Joseph family. This is how we do it in this family. But that rubbing up against all that God had done throughout his life in those times of darkness, in those times of feeling forgotten, here he is now, second in power in all of the empire. And he understands that God was the one that did all of that work. So he thanks God for using his years of darkness, but he just wants to pay his brothers back. That tension, y'all, that tension, the only way he could respond was to weep. Because confronting family cycles is so painful. I believe that these are tears of pain and mourning. What is he losing? He's losing the ways things are done in his family. And he's adopting the habits and the pattern of his new family in God. But getting to that place, I know that sounds really beautiful. (laughs) And it sounds really admirable. but, But actually getting to the place where you could live out the fruits and characteristics of being in the family of God, of patience and kindness and mercy and love and generosity and and grace and not act out grandpa that lives in your bones. (laughs) That's a really difficult thing to do. 
And so these tears are tears of pain and mourning because he knows that he has to mourn that life in order to step into the new one that uh, God has offered him. It is painful to confront and leave the shadows and sins of our family behind. It was in those dark patterns of deception, violence, rivalries, partiality and in his, uh, that existed in his family that got Joseph to the pits of his life. But it was God. Despite family history that used every bit of it to raise him to where he is now, a place of victory, a place of prominence. And the enemy himself, church, will use the weaknesses and the sins that are in our family trees to keep us from the healing and the freedom that comes from being in the new family of God. I'll I'll end with this. I know I'm a bit over, but I'll end with this. I want to call your attention to the, the names of Joseph's kids. And I think this is pretty significant. The names of Joseph, Joseph's kids, in a really subtle way, <clears throat> they call out to this work. They call out to the work of confronting the painful, dark family cycles and the victory that God offers through Jesus that we have uh, in the invitation to being in this new family. His children's names call out to that work. In his years of greatest prominence and flourishing, Joseph had two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and he had them in Egypt. The name Manasseh is connected to a word which refers to forgetting or letting go. Very common usage of this word describes someone being almost like relieved of debt. Releasing, forgetting, or letting go, almost as if we are forgiving a debt or being relieved of a debt. The name Ephraim means fertile or fruitful. Egypt, which is where he had both of these children, means a place of confinement, limitation, a place where one cannot prosper. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, God has made me forget all my hardship and my whole family. And in the second son he named Ephraim, and after he named the second son Ephraim, he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. God is less concerned with blessing you with a platform and more concerned about shaping your character, but it is costly. Joseph And his story and this little scene, there's uh, 49 more chapters of this family story. And I tried to give you a, a, a little portion of his life. But we see so much in this little portion. That part of the power that God offers us in the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus is this new power to look at our families, their their beauties. And the things that are so dark and evil. And to be able to find the courage and the strength to look at them. Acknowledge the way that they have shaped us and formed us. in the way that we exist in this world. And to be able to overcome those painful dark cycles that we exist in. And part of what we see in the life of Joseph. And particularly in the names of their children. Is that in any place of confinement or a place of wilderness. Where one is not expected to prosper. 
God can give us fertile, fruitful ground. And he can cause us to find the strength to bear the fruit of being part of his new family. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the ways in which you call us to live into the characteristics and fruits of this new family. God, help us to see the beautiful parts of our family, the things that we ought to honor uh, far more, but also give us the courage to look at the ways our family tree is littered with ways that have caused us to live in unhealthy ways as we think about the major life components of of uh, existing with our families and friends and in this world. Holy Spirit, grant us the wisdom and strength to discern uh, what you have for us today. Help us to hear, help us to see, help us to perceive. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hello, friends. This is Matthew, the lead pastor at Emmanuel Anglican Church in East Atlanta. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We are disciples of Jesus who are seeking his kingdom and the flourishing of our neighbors. And if you want to find out more about Emmanuel and what's going on, just hop over to our website. The address is Emmanuel, that's with an I, EmmanuelATL.org. Thanks so much. God bless you. Grace and peace.